Blog Talk Radio. I remember the rivers we had to cross. I remember thinking my soul would be lost. I remember the fighting, screaming, and the blood spilling on the ground. I remember the voices ringing out. Yes, I remember each sound. I remember the net that they caught me in. I remember plunging the knife over and over again. I remember looking at you being dragged in the sand. I remember the last glance as I was struck by a white hand. I remember falling into a low dream state. This was where the ancestors danced and the spirits lied in wait. They waited for us finally to arrive and showed us to fight to stay alive. The ancestors put power in me and gave me the voice to tell my story. My spirit calls people is a coastal strip 250 miles long and 40 miles wide where low flat islands separated from the mainland by saltwater rivulets fill the tides twice each day. Swampy grass covered marshlands alternate with palmettos, pines and live oaks overhung with gray moss. Rivers flowing southeast on their way to the Atlantic Ocean meander in these lowlands blending their waters with sounds and bays as they slowly circle the islands, a rich source of both food and transportation. Between them, fingers of land reach out to the sea. 
the Petey River joined by the Waccamaw near Myrtle Beach and then by the Black near Georgetown widens into Winyah Bay. Further south, the Santee flows to the sea above Cape Romaine. Just below McClellanville, the borders of Bulls Bay make the letter C. It's top at the Cape and its bottom at Bull Island. The wide wando paralleling the shoreline soon joins the Cooper. At Charleston, the natives claim the Ashley and the Cooper River flows together to form the Atlantic Ocean. Across the great natural harbor lies Sullivan's Island to the east and James Island to the south. Further southwest lies John's, Waimala, and Edisto Islands. Between John's and the Atlantic Ocean, smaller Keowa and Seabrook are now fashionable resorts. The Cumbee and Ashapoo Rivers empty into St. Helena Sound above the island of that name. The broad to the southwest widens to become Port Royal Sound. Snuggled between the two sounds is the city of Beaufort. Between Port Royal Sound and the Savannah River are Hilton Head and smaller Defusky Island. Along the Georgia coast are the Golden Isles of Guale, as they were called by the Spanish. So numerous and so separated by rivulets that they made ideal entry points for the smuggling of slaves. The Ogeechee that parallels the Savannah River and opens between Skidaway and Osava Islands is said to be the source of the name Geechee, the Georgia equivalent of Gullah. Below St. Catharines, the Altamaha empties between Sapelo and St. Simon's Islands across from the marshes of Glen near Brunswick, made famous by the musical mystical poem by Sidlin Lanier, the Satila enters St. Andrew's Sound between Jekyll and Cumberland Island and St. Mary's separates Georgia from Florida. But this year evening, Hunter the Kainian to the river. But this your voice. I need this your old tree and thing like that. In this your land where we the be. Where we be. Gonna get you anointed. Black gold children. Glad that we the tell you. Still on this island. In this your land. This your island. Oh, gonna get you. Blood field, sweat field, fam. Where well, we the ancestors them, they coming in. We even meet up with the Edisto. And then children, called Yemasi. All of these are children, Lira. Kusago, Cree. Then they call all of them. It's seven or you see. This your day, when people are giant, we, they don't know who we truly be. They won't just stand over yonder underneath the tree. And Yeti, we crack, we tea. Yeti, well, we done now, but tears, I leave it at that, though. And then, they will know what we going to. But see, then I know for true who we do and what we ancestors have been true. For this should therefore come where we will know we have the human rights. Then we can take this your stand and hold upon the land. Ain't gonna let him grind into the Madabayas. So see, it's so glad that Hunter Chillin might join me one more again. For this year we show Gullagichi with a radio. We're glad that the Gullagichi Sion Coalition sponsored this year thing. And this year evening, Hunter to tune in with me, Queen Quinn, Chiefess of the Gullagichi. So glad that Hunter to dare y'all one more again this evening, where we to get upliftment to the living legacy. And a pay ancestral homage. And so, this year evening, we're going to take on a bondage journey. And we'll bring we in. That is your land. 
of the islands in the sea, from Jacksonville to Jacksonville, and inland from North Kakalaki to Florida, all the way 30 to 35 miles to the St. John River, where you're not yet about to snow. I'm going to crack my teeth from this year called the Gullah People and the African Heritage by the late William S. Pollitt, so God bless you, dead. Now, we're going to call them slaves. We're not saying slaves, all, all. That'll be your ancestors. They've been enslaved African people and things like that. And plenty of time today, people in Yeti Tall Tall, them bunch of river and creek and things that snow, when they're going to crack with teeth, right away. Now, Yeti, all the name of things, or who your ancestors have been, will be teeth from Alkibulan and Kayak. We've got plenty of people that grind wrong, crack and things like that. Let's say we come from just a one land in a motherland. And also today, you got plenty of different countries with different the continent of Al-Kibulan, where you get called Africa today. So upon this your program this evening, we'll bring on a children a little bit more enlightenment. You understand? But who you be down here from these islands in the sea? Well, honor the Yeti. I'm cool, cool, and Gigi. Just like Hannah Trump to get her back on her and say, say, the Gigi, South Carolina, Quibbler, and say the name, then from the old Gigi River. But when you get the planet, buck run him, with the along the Gigi River for true. Down in Georgia, then call itself Gigi. They know who we're talk about this evening. We're talking about African children, African descendants. People are African descent. What a goal of Gigi. So then name in the day because of the old Gigi River. It did it because of the Gizi people, G-I-D-Z-I, or the Kizi, K-I-S-S-E-E people from the Windward Coast, Rice Coast region of the motherland. And when you say Gola, G-U-L-L-A-H today, it comes from Gola, G-O-L-A, we've been from that same coastline. And where it was, for that, come from Angola, A-N-G-O-L-A. Chop off the front, and they're going to call me ancestors them, Gola. And the first group of people who've been coming here because they skill. What we know about blacksmithing, what we know about architecture, what we know about building. Because when we ancestor them, we build up all of this shit. Man, we are the Yeti vote, call low country, call them sea island. People are care all of we thing and the true way we culture, they call people talk about rice culture today. If it's a rice culture, how come you not include the Chinese people? If it's a rice culture, why not include the Indian people? If it's a rice culture, why not include people from around the world? That are we for don't say African. We are soft and say African. And another no say our continent. Then you need to know what country from the continent it came from. Then you have to know what ethnic group, like you all like for call them tribe, where they come from. In the motherland. Then you're going to give name back to the people for truth. Not teeth in them. Not teeth with them. Not teeth in culture and heritage and things like that. Rather was teeth for God came for do. But it's your land. So not study with them foolishness there. What's still going on when people are trying to change up everything and act like, and no people still there. The cracking teeth like that. They're learning with the deal. Know who you be to. Just like the time we try to do them this way, we want all the other rest of the people who are there on the world to get leave it all standing. I see I'm standing the greatest thing in the world. That's why we crack with teeth like a dish. 
Because see, if we go out all the way in the color, then whenever they did it, the study that they should take all evening long. And I know why I crack my teeth full if I'm going to start to talk about the whole, we've been in the wrong house and the fool know and thing like that. And then the madawa them been a kind of trollish run, we back a thing. And then, and for us, where was no, we're we going to go out down the creek show. And when we need to go out, you make sure you go out for save your soul. For hold up, this drink it power. We'll go out for us yeah. So you see, and we the crack we keep on this show. I don't know how to get it. Call upon the air. You hear Gichi. Gichi got more lone word in him. For English. See, start off with the Elizabethan English and things in the Trominet. And then, when the Trominet get it, and I like when all of the crack it English style tell It changed up. So the meaning of the same thing. And see, plenty of time people think, say, oh, everything does the same. All the time in the same. Everything that change up, dying the truth out of. Dying the truth out of. I want to crack my teeth. Just like this young man. We didn't follow up. But I don't understand what is going on now. Because see, sometimes you have to go backward so you can go forward. Son, go forward. Because see, if I don't know where I'm going to be from, I can't understand where I'm going to go. Well, he took this young book down. But the people, he writes to this show. The Gullah people face a crisis today as the demand for their land and marsh encroaches upon home and farm and threatens their way of life. They are ill-equipped to meet the challenges of a modern era. Their values, born in Africa and honed through slavery and oppression, based on harmony with nature and their fellow man, contrast with the frantic pace of the consumerism of today and deserves to be more widely known and appreciated. Although early rice planters along this coast were aware that Africans were as diverse as Europeans, owners molded them into a cohesive workforce, ignored ethnic distinctions, and discouraged native customs for survival. Slaves had to submerge differences and create a common culture. Later, white historians homogenized them and constructed stereotypes of the Negro that obliterated their varied ethnicity. Now, while many aspects of Gullah life have been reported, no one has synthesized this varied information to present a complete and integrated people picture. He asked these questions. Who are these people? Where did they come from? And what did they bring with them? Where did they live and how did they survive there? What is their heritage and their fate? And what influence did they have upon whites around them? Now, these are some critical questions that hopefully in this journey over the next 45 minutes or so, we'll be able to give you a few answers to these. Who are these people? Gullah Geechis are the descendants of African and indigenous or Native American peoples that still reside today on the sea islands from Jacksonville, North Carolina to Jacksonville, Florida, and 30 to 35 miles inland to the St. John's River. As I said earlier, this area has been called the low country because ecologically we are below sea level. That is an issue and a dynamic we're dealing with today as people discuss climate change and changing patterns with weather. 
we have always been in this area that is also called a hurricane zone ever since the transatlantic slave trade. And prior to 1670 and the 1500s, the island I'm a native of, St. Helena Island, got its name Santa Elena because of the Spanish that were coming in and out of this area and this zone. So it's very interesting that William Pollitzer made it very clear Africans were as Europeans. You will hear people make statements about European people or use the term white or make statements about the people and just say black or say this term African-American. Those terms don't mean anything in terms of narrowing down the distinctions amongst groups. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating difference. If one can love a salad or a good old pot of true gumbo or retawa, some frogmore stew, and frogmore stew is from frogmore plantation here on St. Helena Island, then you should be able to respect and appreciate difference, but realize that when you blend all of these things together, there's a rich, wonderful, nourishing taste that comes forth. So this is what happened on these islands in this region that are now the Gullah Geechee Nation from Jacksonville, North Carolina to Jacksonville, Florida. Many people have wondered, well, okay, these terms, these names, as I've already explained, Gullah Geechee, and they say, but the next question he asks, where did they come from? The continent of Africa. Africa is a continent, not a country. Within this continent or on the continent, there are multiple countries, and then many of those countries are band together into regions. Now, when you start to look at the historical record for what became Charlestown, Louis Allion, who was a Spanish person with people of African descent, sailed and came through, named Santa Elena, went to the PD, which is north of us. They went through that area, tried to do some settling, didn't work out well. Let's put it that way, they went back. You later had this group called the British Lords Proprietors. They came in again from their country, then eventually settling in 1670, Charlestown, which is now called Charleston, South Carolina, but was the number one enslavement auction block in North America, New York City's Wall Street and the East River being the second. Well, when you look at records into the latter part of the transatlantic slave trade that can still be amassed and put together, and you start to then try to put together an answer for where the Gullah Geechis come from. As I mentioned early on, Angolans were the first of our ancestry brought directly from the motherland. There were also parts of our ancestry brought in from Barbados with the settling of Charlestown, but those Africans also got to Barbados from the motherland just like all the other islands of the Caribbean or Caribbean, whoever's doing the pronouncing there, okay? Now, when you look at these records in the 1800s, from 1807 to 1816, you look at that period of records, you begin to see that they started to keep more of a count of how many cargoes came in of people. 133 cargoes came in from Angola 
133 from Angola, 113 from the Senegambia, Senegal, Gambia area, all right? 113. If you get out a map, and please get an accurate map of Africa because Africa is bigger than North America, um, not that map and that globes that you normally see in America when you go to school, but get an accurate one. Now, from the Windward Coast, all right, region, 85 cargoes were brought in. But that's not the next highest number of cargoes. The next highest number of cargoes is actually 107 and a half, which were a blend of all these other places. So when you start hearing people tell you, all Gullah Geechis are from Sierra Leone. That is inaccurate. When you hear that all Gullah Geechis are from any one country in Africa, that is incorrect. I'm giving you right now regions, all right, of the motherland and giving you an idea. The Windward Coast excluded Sierra Leone with 85 cargoes. Sierra Leone itself was only 34 cargoes. That is where Bunce Island is. All right? So there is a connection, but it is not the overarching connection. So you have Angola, you have the Senegambia, you have the Windward Coast, you have the Gold Coast with 73.5. All right? Then you have the Bight of Biafra, the Bight of Benin, all of them adding to these numbers, and even Mozambique, Madagascar, which is where they believe that the Carolina gold rice seeds came from. All right, that became one of the three major cash crops that built the infrastructure of what is the Sea Islands and the Gullah Geechee Nation today. Now, what is so critical when we look at Angola, for instance, is not only about the blacksmithing, the architectural, the scientific, the engineering skills that people were being kidnapped to bring in from that region and them being the initial group, but also the fact that Cato, or Jemmy, who led the Stone Rebellion in 1739 was Angolan, and he led it with other Angolan men. When you look at the uprising, the Denmark-Visi uprising, you have Gullah Jack, who is from that region, who was a leader, who was a lieutenant with Denmark-Visi. So when we start to talk about our culture, our story, here in the Gullah Geechee Nation, it is not as simplex as one might think when you hear the water bring me, the water go, I take me back. There's a lot of complexity within that proverb, within that statement. It is not the only reason we bury along waterways and along the coastal seaboard, along this intercoastal waterway. That is not the only reason. There's a depth to that, and one has to have spiritual understanding to reach the bottom of where that will take you and rise back up still breathing, still sane. And so here it is when we hear stories of the Igbos who came to this region and who refused to be enslaved and instead we're told that they walked back through the Middle Passage and arrived back at the motherland. Their spirits, their bodies, their minds, could never tolerate enslavement. So again, they rose up. These continued uprisings of the people would happen like how our waves do, how our tides rise, 
And so this is the thing. This is this continuous connection that our people have had, even in the Cape Fear region of North Kakalaki. When you read about our story there, you would find that the reason that they said they had the Negro seamen, the men who worked at sea, who would go in and navigate the ships in that area and the bateau boats in that area was because they knew how to navigate even in the roughest of waters. And when the Europeans tried to take those positions from them and commandeer and captain themselves, they would often capsize. So then they wanted the Africans to do this. Well, these areas I'm naming to you from the motherland are coastal. So if you've lived on a coast for thousands of years, for generation after generation, there's some things that become natural and inherent. Seafood is a part of your diet. You've grown rice all these generations. It is a part of your diet. These are things that we should appreciate and respect that our ancestors were able to hold on to in spite of the odds against it. So when we said, what are the bring we are? Let us take a journey through some other words from the Gullah Geechee Al-Kebulan archive. And many of you who tune to the show each and every week, you know that the show is sponsored by the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition. And the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition has the only archive in the world totally dedicated the Gullah Geechee history, heritage, and culture. So these pieces, even tonight, are from the archive. That's open by application. People who are here in the chat room, you've already seen the email address, but for my listeners worldwide who are interested in coming at any point to the archive to do research, the email address is G-U-L-L-G-E-E-C-O at A-O-L dot com. G-U-L-L-G-E-E-C-O at A-O-L dot com. And so this way, when you contact us, you'll realize that a lot of these materials that I'm sharing with you tonight and have had the opportunity many months ago to also share on the broadcast come out of the archive. And if it were not for this archive, much of our story would not be kept for the community to have access to. Many of the books and the documents and the thesis papers and these images that we have are not anywhere else in print, even books that we have that people just do not sell anymore. And just like William Paulson has passed on, you don't get to have rich works like his anymore. And so tonight I've shared from the Gullah people in the African heritage by William Pollitzer, and from the legacy of Igbo landing, Gullah roots of African-American culture that has the charts in it and the maps in it that will lay out for you the percentages and also a map of the motherland and of our coast of the Gullah Geechee Nation for you to get understanding of who we be down here in this land of the Gullah Geechee. Well, when we go back to Pollitzer's works, he says, who are these people? We've talked about where where did they come from? What did they bring with them? Knowledge. They brought skill sets. They brought engineering, science, healing, herbology. They brought botany. They brought all of this in the belly of the beast with them. They brought their family, and they brought the family compound within their heart and their soul. Let no one fool you that all we brought was entertainment, music, uh, that all we knew how to do was cook food and birth babies to be further enslaved. We brought knowledge. So where do they live and how did they survive there? 
or whether they live in the motherland. We've talked about where they've lived here. We've talked about in the Gullah Geechee Nation what is their heritage and their fate. For God determines all of our fate. And what influences did they have upon whites around them? Well, that influence is still going on today. Because much of the food, when people come to the Gullah Geechee Nation area, if you go to a place that says they're serving soul food or a lot of southern cuisine, most of which are Gullah Geechee recipes, they are African cuisine, and you can match them to many of our African ancestors. Even the word okra itself, and even when you put your thumb together with the finger right next to it and you make a little circle and the other three fingers stand in the air, what does that mean? I know you just said, okay, that's something that came also. These are the types of influences that we've had. And if you go to YouTube and you go to the Gullah Geechee Nations channel on YouTube, look down under language, and you will even see some clips from documentaries such as The Adventure of English that talks about how the Gullah language influenced American English. Many people who hear Geechee, which is a dialect of the Gullah language, believe that because they hear some English words also within it, that then it's just English that had an influence on our language, and they don't give the credence and the credit to how much African languages influenced American English over time and over the years. But these influences of people, of cultures, of ethnic groups coming together, sometimes were positive, sometimes not. Bridges coming on to these islands has not been a good thing. Reconnecting with other cultures that have a consumerism aspect and an aspect of exploitation and some of us going off to cities and colleges where they taught people that what we had was not a value. But now because the tourist market is driving it, you have people writing websites out here that have nothing to do with human rights or dignity or respect of Gullah Geechee tradition and culture, but instead is simply inviting you to come to stores and hear storytelling and be entertained and to miss the whole story of what went on and what wasn't so joy-filled about the journey. And so... I want to read to you from another book from the Gullah Geechee, Al-Kebulan Archive, Denmark Vesey's Revolt, The Slave Plot That Lit a Pulse to Fort Sumter. It was written by John Lofton. And in particular, I want to share this about slave life at sea, pretty much in its entirety, so that after this broadcast, I pray that you would do more research and that you would truly get understanding. And at any time, you can email us at G-U-L-L-G-E-E-C-O at AOL.com or go to www.gullahgeechee.net. That's G-U-L-L-A-H-G-E-E-C-H-E-E dot N-E-T. And if you want to find me, Queen Quet, Chiefess and Head of State for the Gullah Geechee Nation, go to QueenQuet.com, Q-U-E-E-N-Q-U-E-T. And so, the reason I made sure up front that you know how to reach us is because many times people want to dialogue, and fortunately because of social media, we're at Gullah Geechee on Twitter, and we are Gullah Geechee Nation on Facebook. Daily, we get inquiries from those of you who do want to get understanding, those who are seeking truth, not entertainment. Some enjoy edutainment, which is fine, but not to 
further exploit communities of culture and color. But we cannot go forward in truth and respect one another without celebrating these differences and really having the full picture of who we be around the world in Tingwakarere, 100 Krakati for the African people. So I thought the life of Denmark Vesey and the enslaver Captain Joseph Vesey was an interesting piece to read tonight on this program, Gullah Geechee, The Water Bring We. In 1781, the year in which Captain Joseph Vesey acquired his undisposable chattel, Denmark, the captain was in the business of supplying slaves to the French on an island colony of Saint-Domingue, where premium prices were paid. Since the French in the 1780s were importing about 20,000 slaves a year to Saint-Domingue, this trade alone was enough to keep Captain Vesey and others busy on the sea lanes between the slave marts and the West Indian Island. During this maritime interval of his life, Denmark had an opportunity to increase his facility with languages by hearing French and Spanish in addition to the English he heard spoken on the shipboard. He had already been introduced to Danish. The extent of Denmark's Vesey's travel, Denmark's travels by sea, while something less than worldwide, was sufficient to give any bright youth an instructive cosmopolitan experience. Captain Vesey's voyages as early as the 1770s had linked such divergent points as St. Eustatius, St. Vincent, St. Kitts, Dominica, Hispaniola, New Providence, Jamaica, St. Croix, Tobago, and Martinique. While most of these ports of call were British, several other cultures were represented among them. St. Eustatius was Dutch, St. Croix, Danish, and Hispaniola, the West Part, and Martinique, French. By the time Denmark Vesey joined him, Captain Vesey had probably begun transatlantic voyages, crossings to Africa. With mainland North America and many Caribbean ports cut off by war, a busy slaver was not likely to find in the West Indies all the human cargo he needed. Moreover, it was in 1781 that a monopoly to Dench, Danish West Indian slave trade was granted to a single company. For Denmark, the broad Atlantic and the coast of Africa offered far more challenging horizons than the cane fields which hemmed in most West Indian slaves. The three to ten months required for a trading foray to the slave coast provided time for the contemplation and for kaleidoscopic observation. Africa at this time had already been exploited and degraded for several centuries by European slave traders. While domestic slavery had long existed in Africa, the overseas slave trade induced wholesale horror and debasement that changed the relatively peaceful generous, and even gentle character of the African society of an earlier time. Africans themselves participated in and were corrupted by the transoceanic trade, but Europeans and Americans were prime movers in the activity which by Denmark Vesey's time exhibited brutality and contempt for human life on a continental scale. A typical American slave ship of Vesey's time was a sloop, a schooner, or barkentine, of about 50 tons burden, Captain Vesey commanded vessels of all three types while sailing between Charleston and the West Indies. Such a ship, when engaged in ordinary freighting, had but a single deck. For a slaving voyage, however, a temporary second deck was constructed some three feet below the regular main deck. 
barrels of water and food were first stowed in the hole so as to occupy as little space as possible. Then a row of stanchions rising just above the barrels were erected fore and aft along the keelson. These were connected by a ridge pole from which rafters were extended to the sides of the ship. Common unplaned boards were laid on the rafters to form the temporary deck which served as slave quarters. A captain, two mates, and from three to six men and boys usually handled the craft of this kind. The ship captains, if they were not owners, generally received in addition to their salaries commissions of four slaves and 104 on gross sales. And they also were permitted to buy, transport, and sell specified numbers of slaves on their private accounts. Though Captain Vesey had sailed ships similar to the American slavers, by 1781, he evidently was a master of a ship that was comparable with the English slave vessels of the day. These were generally twice as large as the typical 50-ton American slaver. Judging by the report that Captain Vesey in 1781 took on 390 slaves at St. Thomas, we may infer from the practice of this transatlantic trade that his ship was a vessel of about 255 tons. On a voyage to Africa, Vesey in all likelihood employed methods similar to those of the English slavers. They arranged their ships so as to make maximum use of the available space. They built platforms six to eight feet wide in between decks, areas of their vessel, and thus nearly doubling the floor space on which slaves could be stowed. During the time that a ship was loading its human cargo and water and provisions on the slave coast, the Negroes were ordinarily kept in a temporary stockade on deck for the sake of fresh air. While the ship was at sea, however, the slaves were kept below in their cramped quarters at night and whenever the weather was bad. They were allowed on deck for food, air, and exercise only during daylight hours. It was at this time that the crew cleaned the quarters. To compel prompt compliance with orders, some masters did not hesitate with using the whip. On the first part of the voyage, men slaves were usually kept shackled to reduce the risk of mutiny. When insurrections did occur, severe repressive measures were taken. It was customary for captains to flog the slaves after an uprising was put down. Some captains used tongs to burn the flesh of offenders, and some employed thumbscrews to torture them. On some occasions, insurrectionists were put to death by torture. The whole crude drama of a slaving voyage was for young Denmark a visible reenactment of a tragic chapter in his family history. It was not uncommon for slave ships to loose from a quarter to a third of their slaves to disease or suffocation in the Middle Passage. The designation given to the trip between the West Indies because it was the second leg of the vessel triangular voyage from America to Africa and from Africa to the Caribbean and from the Caribbean back to America. Slaves with ailments incurred in this passage frequently died shortly after delivery to their purchasers. The crews of the African slavers also suffered from the effects of the Middle Passage. Captains often reported that their seamen of slave ships arrived in the West Indies in a sickly debilitated state. One captain related that he had frequently seen them with their toes rotted off, their lower legs swelled to the size of their thighs, and an ulcerated state all over. He observed them lying under the balconies of the houses near the waterside in Barbados and Jamaica. The life 
that Denmark Fissy experienced as a servant of a slaver captain can perhaps best be pictured by referring to descriptions of the trade in which his master was engaged during the early period of the young Negro service with him. Denmark may actually have seen service on more than one kind of ship. A small vessel like most of those which Captain Vesey commanded carried besides his master perhaps ten men, two mates, a cooper, a cook, a boy, and five sailors. Her equipment consisted of a pair of swivel guns and 100 grape shot padlocks, a dozen pair of handcuffs and shackles, 21-foot boat, some 25 gallons of vinegar to wash down the slave quarters between decks, and a medicine chest well-stocked with Peruvian back-containing quinine bark-containing quinine. Her cargo consisted largely of rum made in Newport. The larger ship which Captain Vesey commanded in 1781 carried, of course, a comparably larger company. Her complement of men would have approached 60 with three mates and two surgeons. Acquisition of a full cargo of slaves took, in a typical case, some four months of cruising and trading on the African coast. The slaver and visiting the kingdoms of Ashti and Dahomey in West Africa in the section popularly known to the English as the Gold Coast and the Slave Coast would commonly have to stop at a dozen towns and settlements in order to fill a hole with human freight. Among the trading points along this section of the coast were Aga or Aga, Anabo, Calabar, Comati, Dixcove, Gabon, Ningo, Popo, Prom Prom, Quishitang, Salt Pond, Wajah, Williams Fort. Traders did not travel inland themselves, depending rather on factors of natives to bring the slaves to the coast. Goods bought for slaves included tobacco, rum, gin, guns, powder, knives, cutlasses, kettles, pots, pans, needles, fish hooks, iron, lead bars, beads, shells, much used by African tribes for currency, linen, and cotton material. The Africans who are rounded up and thus traded for material wealth, were in the process subjected to innumerable cruelties and indignities, both by their original captors and by their purchasers. Though the treatment accorded the ship-bound captors undoubtedly varied with different captains, the literature of the time suggests that this brutality was common. Whatever Captain Vesey's tendencies might have been, Denmark in this course of his travels undoubtedly witnessed enough inhumanity in the traitor and slave relationship to intensify the dislike for slavery, which his personal status had already induced. Denmark's familiarity with the trade, however, went beyond his personal experiences. One of his associates later told of a pamphlet on the slave trade which Denmark possessed. Now, I want you all to go back and listen closely what someone's life was worth. Tobacco. Rum, gin, guns, powder, knives, cutlasses, kettles, pots, pans, needles, fish hooks, iron, lead bars, beads, shells, linens, and cotton material. Now put this in today's terms. Let's just take a walk back through this. When we start talking about the beads and the shells, the shells in particular, they're cowrie shells, supposedly for vision but also for prosperity, first forms of currency in the motherland. So you're talking about folks trying to get that money. All right? So now let's go to this. Linens and cotton material threads. Anybody out there remember that? Don't act cute. 
threads, right? We're still trying to get these threads. Tobacco, rum, gin, guns. Does that not sound like what are the same items that are part of this process of continued enslavement in North America and in particular in the United States today when we talk about the prison industrial complex? Are people not still being traded? Their entire souls are being traded for them to have some tobacco, rum, gin, guns, and what? Powder. Notice here, all it says is powder. Don't tell you what kind. I'm going to let you all figure that out in today's terms. Knives, cutlasses. This is what folks are cutting up one another. They can't get a gun. You got families at home fighting one another, cutting each other up even to this day. Kettles, pots, pans. Folks ain't cooking no more, so they ain't going to hardly trade for that, huh? Ain't eating what they need to eat. So death by belly in either case. We have the diets killing our community today. But back then, we let our people die for some kettles, pots, and pans. Needles and fish hooks. Fish hooks, the thing that we use to go out in the creek to catch what should be nourishing. But instead, you let your brother or sister's life hang on the hook in trade. Iron and lead bars. We go to the stock exchange, the commodity, the trading system, silver, gold bars, these things being traded. Huh. To do what? Get that money. So here it is. Now, when we talk about the cargo of our ancestors and the water to bring we are, and things like that, and it's just a truly get a kind of thing. People in the study, they should be. They're going to grind up and grind up and change the system and things like that, but get more and more for teeth and for cabot and for trade and for bada. So even as you hear how these boats, how these navigational vessels, vessels of enslavement were built, when you hear the increase in the amount of people that could be employed on them, there's an increase in the amount of black cargo or black gold that's on them as well. There are more Africans being put on board because these people who now own these ships are making more money, and the more money they make, the larger the boats they build, the more that they navigate the water, the more they get an understanding of how to make the trek. They start to increase the size of the vessel. The larger the vessel, the more cargo, the more trade, the more dispersion, the larger the African diaspora. So when we start to talk today about worrying about some kind of clothes and being willing to kill one another for it, think about this. When we start talking about getting cigarettes and smoking them, think about this. When we pull out the rum and the gin and everybody want to throw up some shots and all that, we need to think about this. When we start pulling guns on one another, we need to think about this. When we have this powder that's sending our people into the prison industrial complex, we need to think about this. When we talk about the New York Stock Exchange, and the bars that are sold there, don't forget what I said earlier, Charleston, Charlestown, was the number one enslavement auction block, but the second largest was Wall Street and the East River. Sold and traded for tobacco, rum, guns, gin, powder, knives, cutlasses, kettles, pots, pans, needles, fish hooks, iron and lead bars, beads, shells, linens, and cotton material, and then you are sold. And so are your children. Now I'm going to pick up where I left off. Because as I said, I want you to hear this whole section in its entirety 
of a slave life at sea. A factual account of the life slaves experience on shipboard should be a relevant part of a report on Denmark's career, since he did extensive voyaging on a slave ship. One of the most dispassionate and yet vivid descriptions of a slaver in the literature on the subject is contained in a letter written from Barbados to the West Indies, sometimes in 1795 to 96, by George Pinkard of London. The doctor and a companion visited an American slave ship, not unlike one of Vessie's vessels. She had just arrived from the Guinea coast and was bound for Savannah, Georgia. The ship's master and mate greeted them courteously and readily answered their questions. Of the cargo of 130 slaves, two-thirds were males and one-third females, with a majority of the whole group being between the ages of 10 and 18. Hear that again, 10 and 18. The sexes were kept separate below decks by a bulkhead across the ship with the waist allocated to the men and the quarter deck to the women. Bare planks served as their common bed, each individual having to use his arm as a pillow if he wanted one. When they were laying down, they were so close together that it was scarcely possible to set foot between their naked bodies, and the men could not stand between decks without stooping. Even though the slaves were always taken on deck early in the morning and their berths thoroughly washed, the sleeping quarters were still highly offensive to European noses, the doctor reported. No measures could subdue the stench created by the slaves sleeping in such crowded fashion and depositing their excrement where they slept. The Negroes' food was chiefly rice, which they prepared by simple boiling. To eat it, they sat on the heels around bowls, each putting his hand in a container to claw out what he wanted. Some of the time when they were on deck was occupied in beating the red husk off the rice. The doctor observed several of them pounding the grain, standing upright and indolently raising a pestle, and then letting it fall off of its own weight into a mortar containing unhushed rice. This was done to the accompaniment of song and seemed to be a labor of cheerfulness. Some members of the human cargo were used in work in the ship, several of them becoming expert tailors and making themselves highly useful during the passage. All of the involuntary passengers seemed to regard the master of the vessel more in affection than in fear, said the doctor. And though they were strictly obedient, they did not seem to be at all under the influence of terror. During the day, the slaves were dispersed about the ship and roused to bodily exercise to divert their minds from the dwelling upon their change of state and loss of home. As Dr. Pinkard and his friend walked through different groups of them, they observed an air of general cheerfulness and contentment, noting signs of despondency and dejection in only a few. Both sexes were without clothes except for a narrow band of, of blue cloth tied about the waist and running through the crotch from front to back. Boys were inclined to be playful and to exhibit youthful tricks, and the girls whose reserve was unchecked by education, the doctor detected an occasional expressive look or significant gesture. Many individuals had marks on the skin which appeared to have been made by a cutting instrument. The visitors learned later that these were distinctive of the nation to which the Negroes belonged. Some of the company had the teeth cut or filed to sharp points, which gave them a hideous and canine appearance although some of the slaves had an eruption on the skin called cra-cra. The group, for the most part, looked healthy and well-fed. Encouraged by the music of the banjo, the captives sometimes danced and sang while on deck during the day. The doctor reported that they scarcely moved their feet but waved their arms about, writhed and twisted their bodies into a multitude of disgusting and indecent attitudes. Their song was a wild and savage yell, chanted loudly and in a harsh monotony and devoid of all softness and harmony. 
having finished his tour. The doctor said he had seen no marks of the cruelties said to be practiced on board the ships engaged in the traffic in human flesh. Change in severities did not seem to be among the devices used in conveying this cargo of Negroes and their American masters. Care evidently was taken to promote their health and comfort. But the doctor nevertheless felt compelled to record that his mind and that of his companion necessarily suffered in contemplating the degrading practices of civilized beings toward the less civilized heathen of their species. Dr. Finker's observations on the Guinea man were recorded in the mid-1790s. The scene was one that would have been familiar to Joseph Vesey only a few years before. His ship had ridden at anchor in the same harbor. Now notice, this man claimed that being aboard an enslavement vessel was like being on a cruise ship, as if people came up to the top of the deck, prepared their own food, ate it with their hands, and then danced to the banjo and just enjoyed the evening. Only a few were despondent, and then they were taken back down to the part where he brushed over, where they would be placed so tightly together that you couldn't even get a foot between, your, meaning your literal foot could not, that you walk on, couldn't stick in between two people, and the excrement and everything else was pouring over onto each other who were basically naked, other than one piece of blue cloth, almost like a diaper, on your person, and that these individuals, had been put into these conditions, taken from their homes, kidnapped, placed in this bondage, in this horror, but yet they didn't seem to be bothered. If they didn't seem to be bothered, why are there so many other accounts of the uprisings on the ships where they talk about having to need to use whips? So you see this contradiction within the same chapter of literature. And these are the types of things that make you have to know your story, make you have to think it through. But you can only know how to do that if you do the research, if you study, if you read, and if you get understanding. And that is why it is so critical to not make light or make it trite of what Gullah Geechee represents today that there were hundreds of thousands to millions of African people brought from the various parts of the motherland that I outlined earlier and brought into these seaboards along this coastline. You heard me read about Savannah. You heard me read about Charleston. You just didn't hear me read about Beaufort and Georgetown and all these other areas and where American beaches down in Fernandina. You didn't hear me read that tonight, but the story doesn't end with this piece. The story doesn't end with this doctor who says, oh, on this one journey, I didn't see anything. But it ends when we get understanding and we begin to respect one another and not allow us to still be re-enslaved for a few shiny things and a few baubles, a few pieces of linen, cloth, powder, guns, as read earlier. We need to begin to stand united and educating not only ourselves but one another. So that's why tonight and periodically during the broadcast, we will pull books from the Gullah Geechee Bulan archives so that all our listeners worldwide get to hear more of our story, not just from my writing, but that from others, so that you can hear the juxtaposition, but also so that you can get wisdom. 
Most of you have heard me say before that my favorite proverb of all that I've ever read is wisdom is the principal thing. So get wisdom, but in all thy getting, get understanding. So as Queen Quet Chieftain had to stay for the Gullah Geechee Nation, founder of the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition, I pray that tonight's broadcast helps you under and overstand all the more the answers to the questions that Pulitzer asked in his book when he said, who are these people, where did they come from, what did they bring with them, where did they live and how did they survive there, what is their heritage and their fate, and what influence did they have upon the whites around them. Well, I can say that our ancestors that taught me, taught me well, my elders taught me well to always stand for who we are. Never forget where home they at. Never forget where home come from. Home ain't know where home they from. Home ain't going now where home they going. So I pray that this helps some of you go forward now that we have gone back. I hope that many of you will join me this Saturday for Gullah Geechee Celebration of the Sea, our annual celebration where we do show documentaries as well as teach people how to fish so that you can go forward in nurturing your families. And this weekend, yes, the rice you heard them talking about, we will be serving rice. We'll be at Hunting Island Nature Center in Beaufort County, South Kakalaki. You will drive through Santa Elena. St. Helena Island, I spoke about, to get there. We will be there this coming Saturday, September the 14th, from noon until 5. You can find more information on Facebook. We do have the event up there. You can also go to GullahGeecheeNation.com and find out not only more information about that, but there will also be more on our blog about this episode with more of our story. And there are many other articles that accompany Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio link at GullahGeecheeNation.com that you can read, print, share, and definitely this show you can download on iTunes and share it. I see some folks that's in the chat room tonight saying, I got to go back and listen to the show from the beginning. Please do, but also share it with family and friends. Post it in your social media links, embed it on your websites, download it from iTunes. It's absolutely free, and definitely always join we. Because this your show, the we show, and about being the upliftment to the living legacy and to pay ancestral homage. So this year evening, we dedicate this year program, not only to Denmark, but to all of ancestors that who been left in the middle passage, who have met them this year for, and things like that. And rather was, we dedicate this year program to all of we ancestors, who learn we, who we be, and things like that. And tell we, for who have been, these your land in the sea, because they blood, sweat, and tears still there, you see. So I'm so glad God make them the different black gold. And God, thank you, thank you, all on the children, for joining me one more again for this year program from the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition. This year, the Queen Quet head from the body of the Gullah Geechee Nation. And so glad he for be the hostess for this year Gullah Geechee Rhythm radio station. And so glad he for Yeti Plenty for all on the children. But make sure that you always know just who you be chilling. And that way you're chilling in the future. Why know who you be for true. Keep holding on the land no matter what you do. Peace.